All right, welcome uh, everybody. We are going to get going. Uh, my cohort, James Wilson, uh, is on his way. He is a rock and roll star after all, and so um, this is early in the morning for him, so he's on his way from his house, and uh, he is doing the, uh, the, the second part anyway. But uh, let me just welcome you to uh, first to Christ Church. Uh, my name is Paul Walker, and I'm the rector here. Uh, is this the first time to anybody at Christ Church, Charlottesville? We're so glad you're here. We apologize about the parking. You know, we just don't have anything to say about that except we're sorry, and um, and we're glad you've here. You're here, and you've you found a Christ Church. I'm just doing a little filler right now. It was uh, originally built in 1820. It's the first church in Charlottesville, and Jefferson gave money. Uh, to the original church, which was focusing, which which was facing this way, kind of a Greek revival sort of thing, and then it was torn down. There was no board of architectural review. It's in 1890, and they tore the sucker down. This Jeffersonian building, which uh, it needed to be torn down, it's fallen apart, and then this building was uh, built in 18 in the late 1890s, and then we just renovated. We just finished our first renovation in 100 years. Uh, to put that new organ in. Anyway, welcome to Christ Church, and welcome to Charlottesville, and welcome to Mockingbird. And uh, what this session is, as uh, you already know, unless you, you think you're in a Sunday school class, is uh, the life and work of William Faulkner. Obviously, uh, we can only scratch the surface, and uh, there's a seat up here at Lincoln Solace, and we'll... Um, so what, what I'm going to do in my part is just give an overview. What I'm assuming is, is that uh, many of you uh, have, you know, some of you know nothing really about Faulkner. Many of you have tried to read Faulkner and just thrown the book away and said, what is the deal with this thing? Uh, and I'm also certain that there are some of you who know way more than I do about Faulkner. Way more than I do about Faulkner. So that I'm going to begin with a, dis a disclaimer. I'm not an English uh, PhD. Uh, I'm not a lit crit guy. I was an English major at UVA in 1986, and I'm a southerner, and uh, I like bourbon. <laughs> and I don't smoke a pipe, but I really wish I could, you know, and I... I would like to dress up and go fox hunting. My daughter does that, but I don't. But so I, I have, um, I have, uh, and I've just been. All, I, so what I'm saying is, many of you know more than I do about Faulkner. And what I hope this will turn into is a, a time for you to tell me some things that I don't know and share with the group. And uh, James uh, will is, and I'll say this in his. There he is, right there. Woo! James is going to lead us, start us off with a song from Sons of Bill. And, uh, I got problems, man. <laughs> That's right. So J James um, is, uh, ha and I have connected on uh, Faulknerian levels uh, since we met uh, several years ago. And then we were, yes, and we were, um, James is a parishioner here, and this is a man who knows the sound and the fury uh, backwards and forwards, and we were having coffee about three weeks ago and talking about it, and I just thought, this is unhinged brilliance, this man that's talking about. His father teaches Faulkner at UVA, and uh, you know, when he said, now, you know, Dad, Dad's been really helpful, but I really disagree with him about a few things, and I thought, wow, this is a guy who's really thought this through. And um, so, Jay, what, what we're going to do is I'm going to give a little bit of an overview, maybe have some time for questions, and then uh, James is going to talk about the sound of the fury, 
uh, in particular. So Faulkner overview. And I'm going to talk a little bit about his life, a little bit of why I feel connected to him and why I, I read him during the sabbatical. And, uh, and then also talk about ways for people who are interested in reading Faulkner, how maybe to begin. How maybe to begin. And um, so that's, that's what we hope to do. And again, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I'll just begin this with a prayer. Lord, thank you uh, very much for this Mockingbird Conference. Thank you for uh, the ways that you work so powerfully through, um, through your servant, William Faulkner. Uh, thank you for the brilliant insights, I would say, inspired by your Holy Spirit uh, that continue to delve deep into the, into the archaeology of our hearts. Uh, so we ask that you would guide us and lead us in this time together uh, right now. Amen. Okay, so let me tell you why I'm leading, why Dave asked me to lead this session and why I'm leading it. So again, I'm no kind of lit crit expert, but um, I do live in the world of, of literature all the time. I mean, that's how, that's, that's kind of where I draw my uh, life source uh, in the world of literature. And so uh, I just had a sabbatical uh, um, from April until August, a four-month sabbatical. And what I decided to do on sabbatical was uh, not write a book or go to do a theological course or do anything like that. I just thought, this is the time to read Faulkner. Because I, I, I studied Faulkner as an English major undergrad UVA, and I was a bit maybe like you who've tried it and sort of put it down and what's all the fuss. And so um, Faulkner is, needs to be read when your life is not in any kind of ADD situation. You need to have a lot of space, I think, to read him. Uh, and you, you, so I had this, uh, this, this four months of freedom from the law, freedom from demand of being the clergyman here, of how many people are showing up at church and how is the money doing, basically. And uh, so I had this, and then I got off email and off Facebook. And I uh, just stayed in basically my backyard and sometimes under my bed, not even on my bed, under my bed, <laughs> reading Faulkner. And so um, what, what I wanted to do in my sabbatical uh, was, was to work out uh, my own inner turmoil, uh, my own uh, conflicted relationships with my own uh, family of origin, uh, to try to uh, delve into the archaeology of my heart and my life. And the way God speaks to me primarily is through the Bible, but it's also through literature. And so I had space and time to do that, and an extraordinary, amazing staff here, and things going so well here at Christ Church, I was really left alone. So, uh, so basically, I had lots of time to... Uh, um, to um, to, to look at my heart, which is in conflict with itself, which is Faulkner's own description, his raison d'etre for all of his work. A heart that the best stories are about the human heart in conflict with itself, which is, of course, Romans 7, straight out of Paul's letter to the Romans in 7, where I don't do the things I want to do, and I do do the things that I, I don't want to do. And why Faulkner was so brilliant is that he told stories about people and people who are in deep conflict with themselves, with their mothers, their fathers, their community. Uh, they were divided people. He told stories. 
And people would say, you know, he was just adored and loved by the French existentialists. Uh, the French said, uh, Faulkner is liked in America, he is deified in Europe. Uh, and so they would ask him about all his ideas, and he would just say, I'm not really interested in ideas, I just tell stories about people. And uh, what uh, James's professor said, and I put a little blog uh, uh, bit about this I thought was so interesting. James's professor at, at Deep Springs uh, College said, um, if you want to learn about other people, read Dostoevsky. If you want to learn about yourself, read Faulkner. And that's what happened to me. And so uh, I, I, saw, I started my sabbatical, and I went up to New York City for the Mockingbird Conference, and then I saw the death of a salesman uh, on Broadway, and I was just completely emotionally undone by that. Uh, it was an ex a spectacular performance with uh, um, Andrea What's-His-Face, who, who became Spider-Man in, um, in the summer. And then, uh, so, had that experience, and then started reading The Sound and the Fury, and was nearly emotionally catatonic with the, the depth charge of connection that I felt uh, with my own life in the life of Quentin Compson and the Compsons. Uh, so, you know, so in my sabbatical, Death of a Salesman, The Sound of the Fury, one work involves the suicide of a father, the other book involves the suicide of a son. What a nice sabbatical. Don't you wish you could have one, right? How <laughs> depressing. But um, as I said, Faulkner needs lots of time to read. When, when asked once, Mr. Faulkner, what do I do? If I've read your novel three times and I still don't understand it, and he replied, read it a fourth time. <laughs> read it a fourth time. And that's true. You sort of have to uh, approach uh, Faulkner as if you're uh, reading a, a, a mystery sometimes. Uh, yeah, there has to be a sort of a willing suspension of, of belief and entering into the world in, in which you don't really understand what's going on. Uh, but you just begin to enjoy the luscious prose. Uh, I also did use spark notes, which was helpful. I'll talk about that later, about how to read them, because you have to know what's happening. Um, I, had, I, I feel a personal identification with Faulkner and his family. Just as a Southerner, the, the, there, there, are, there feels to me just a lot of uh, personal identification. That's just me as uh, having grown up in the South with a family sort of like his, uh, was uh, said, what's the definition of a, of a good family? One that used to be better. <laughs> right. And so, um, you know, uh, this, is, this, is, this is the description of uh, Faulkner's family from Dean Faulkner. And Dean is the daughter of uh, Faulkner's brother, Dean. Another southern thing, you know, girls being named after fathers. And a Dean, the younger brother, William Faulkner, died in a plane crash in 1936 while Dean, the baby, was still in utero. Uh, and Dean, the younger brother, uh, Faulkner was obsessed with aviation. And Dean, the younger brother, uh, was flying in a plane that was sold to him by William. Uh, and it crashed. And we don't know whether it was mechanical error or whether it was pilot error, but that completely undid the older brother, as you can imagine. And Dean just wrote this uh, biography called Every Day in the Sun, and this is what she says about her relatives. My relatives were private people, building 
walls not only to shield themselves from outsiders, but from one another. This vaunted Faulkner privacy, which has been interpreted as anything from crippling shyness to arrogance to paranoia, may have evolved as a safety hatch in light of our eccentric and sometimes outrageous behavior. Over the generations, my family can claim nearly every psychological aberration. <laughs> Narcissism and nymphomania, alcoholism and anorexia, agoraphobia, manic depression, paranoid schizophrenia. There have been thieves, adulterers, sociopaths, killers, racists, liars, folks suffering from pan attacks and real bad tempers, though to the best of my knowledge, we've never had a barn burner or a preacher. <laughs> That's where we defer. I am, well, actually, we had a, a preacher in the late 1600s back in my family history, but, but then, then we went underground until I came out. Um, so uh, then, then she goes, Dean says, the only place we can be found in relative harmony is in St. Peter's Cemetery in Oxford, Mississippi. <laughs> Yet there, we can't even agree how to spell our name. It appears as Faulkner. Uh, F-A-L-K-N-E-R, on several headstones. In the next plot, Faulkner, with a U. In the main family plot, both Faulkner and Faulkner, buried next to one another. And one grave uh, marker reads, F-A, parentheses U, L-K-N-E-R. It's obvious that though there were not many of us to begin with, we're never, we're, we've never been a close-knit family. We're prone to falling outs, quick to anger, slow to forgive. Whereas most families come together at holidays or anniversaries, ours rarely has, at least not my generation. With the exception of our immediate kin, we've been derelict in keeping up family ties. Pappy tried, Pappy being William Faulkner's um, name in the family. On New Year's Eve in the 1950s, he liked to host small gatherings for his family and friends at his home, Roanoke. Dressed to the nines, we met shortly before midnight in the library where magnums of champagne were chilling in wine coolers and Crystal champagne glasses were arranged on silver trays. As the hour approached, Pappy moved about the room and welcomed his guests. When our glasses were filled, he would nod at one of the young men standing near the overhead light switch. Then he would take his place in front of the fire. And the lights were out, and the room was still with firelight dancing against the window panes. Pappy would lift his glass and give his traditional New Year's toast, unchanged from year to year. Here's to the younger generation, he would say. May you learn from the mistakes of your elders. And she writes, I'm still learning. This was published in, uh, in the spring of, of two years ago, and, and the dean died. She was the last of the generation, died later. You, you may know that uh, Jill Faulkner, uh, 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 Faulkner's daughter, lived here in Charlottesville, married to Paul Summers, uh, and their, their grandson, right, Jay? Paul Summers III lives, lives here, still in Charlottesville, and... Um, you know, many of the kind of older generation of, of, uh, of Charlottesvillians know him. And he was the visiting uh, professor, uh, uh, a writer in residence at UVA in the late 50s, and all of his talks are recorded and available uh, there. So um, he grew up a Methodist. Uh, he joined St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Oxford later and is buried there. Uh, that's where his, uh, his funeral um, happens, and he was buried there. He, he, he was born in 1897 and died in 1962. Now, I want to just say a few sort of mockingbird insights about um, why Faulkner feels relevant to me. One of his most famous quotes 
is uh, from a book that is a later book, and I'm going to talk about sort of the the, the main um, the main section of his literature, which is enduring, which happened from the Sound and the Fury to go down Moses. But this book is from Requiem of a Nun, and you've probably heard this quote: "The past is not dead; it's not even past. The past is not dead; it's not even past." And uh, so this is again a, a Christian insight into the enduring nature of our the gravitational pull of original sin as it is expressed in the dysfunction of our family lives and our own hearts. And so, yes, God does give us deliverance, and yes, there is healing, uh, but uh, on the one hand, but also on the other experiential hand, uh, the, the rates of recidivism among us as sinners are high. We continue to sort of go back, the scripture says, in a crass way, like dogs to their vomit, uh, to the, the basic difficulties of our lives. And so what one of the things that Faulkner meant in that, I think, that the past is not dead, it's not even past, is that we have been given a, 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 a set of givens in our life uh, that relate to our birth order and uh, whether or not we have um, difficult mothers or fathers uh, the, the, the just sort of psychology of our own lives and that we live within these givens and we don't, there's no such thing as just moving on. I'm going to bring closure to this and move on as that these, these issues continue to cycle back through our lives and uh, Faulkner was aware of that. Um, he himself in his life, one of the things that to me endears me to him, he was he was, another word we use in Mockingbird is he was simul eustus et peccator. He was both the sinner and the saint. He was justified in the sinner. He was able to write these extraordinarily penetrating uh, uh, corpus of work. And yet he, like us, was a deeply flawed man, as the litany that I just read from Dean. He was a man acquainted with sorrow. Uh, he, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature... And did you know, he never even finished high school. Didn't finish high school, not much less college. Uh, he was basically, you know, Ethan is doing a, a session later. Oh, there you are, Ethan, on adultescence, about uh, adolescents who can't grow up and they extend the, the failure to launch. Well, Faulkner was a ne'er-do-well until he was about 32 years old. And he just went from job to job to job with no education. Uh, and then back um, onto the scene become, comes this remarkable uh, um, genius. He uh, was a deeply uh, insecure man, and again, like me, and I would imagine like you, he had a deep desire to be uh, to, to to fight in World War One, and yet uh, he was too small, and he wasn't. He was too young, and so. When, when people were being drafted. So he went up and he joined, he went to Canada and joined the Royal Air Force. He falsified an English identity and joined the Royal Air Force. And then he came back uh, to Oxford and he assumed this sort of British air and they called him Count No Count. And, uh, <laughs> and he had a walk with a cane and he had a limp and he talked about battles 
he never fought in and crashes he never was in. He talked about when he would crash in France, you know, because he was so anxious, like me and you, to present a front that would be acceptable. Right? And so, and one of the biographers I read uh, talked about how he just continued sort of to assume different personalities all through his life. And that's one of the reasons. He struggled with alcoholism, of course. He, was, he, he had to be dried out, um, you know, on several, at several times. He struggled with depression. You know, as, as is, is no secret, uh, genius, artistic genius, and often crippling depression uh, go hand in hand. And alcohol is uh, one of the easiest ways to assuage the anxieties. And so um, he, he also had a, a deeply a troubled marriage. Uh, he, he, he loved his wife, but he didn't love his wife. And he had mistresses, and as the older he got, the kind of younger the mistresses got. And yet he was also a man at the same time who was deeply um, interested in his own honor and uh, honor of marriage. He wouldn't leave his wife because he, he believed in, in marriage, even though he had a troubled marriage and cheated on his marriage. He, he took care of Dean uh, financially, even though he struggled financially all through most of his life. He had to go in the 30s while he was writing all this, this extraordinary literature to go out to Hollywood to write screenplays. So just so he could get money, and he was pretty much an abysmal failure out there at the screenplay uh, department. But um, he did that just to get money, and he had a he had a, a strong sense of honor to um, to, to keep his family uh, under his wing. Now, um, like I said, he was the writer in residence at UVA. And uh, he wanted to be up here with his, his daughter and son-in-law and his uh, grandchildren. And he actually bought a house right on Rugby Road. And I, I walk past it when I'm walking down to the grounds. And uh, if anybody would like to buy that for me, I would like to have it. Um, so where do you begin with Faulkner? How do you begin with Faulkner? He died, by the way, in 1962, uh, probably exacerbated by his, um, his perennial bouts with alcohol. Uh, he died of a heart attack in 1962 and um, was, was buried and is buried in Oxford, Mississippi at St. Peter's Episcopal Church. He, uh, where, where do you begin to read Faulkner? Uh, well, he called this series of uh, books that he wrote from 29 to 42, One Matchless Time. And again, some of you, like I said to begin with, know much more about Faulkner, have different opinions, have at me uh, with this. But he, he said uh, that um, with, uh, with the publication of Sound and Fury uh, in 1929, all the way through the publication of Go Down Moses in 1942, it was just sort of one hit after another. He wrote the Sound and the Fury. He wrote uh, a kind of a salacious, money-making novel called Sanctuary, which is, in fact, uh, an, an intellectually brilliant novel. It's not just a really... Uh, that's an easy one to read, by the way. If you want to start with Faulkner and not sound and fur, you can read, you read Sanctuary. Uh, then he wrote um, As I Lay Dying, right after that, Light in August, Absalom, Absalom, If I Forget Thee, Jerusalem, 
and go down Moses. And th these, these works of art, uh, in my opinion, spectacular, the way that uh, he was able to write these, these amazing works, one right after another within this concentrated period of time in which um, he was always struggling for money, he was going out to Hollywood to try to do the screenwriting, he was trying to figure out how to stay married, his brother died, uh, etc. Now, um, he said this, he, he published three novels before he wrote The Sound of the Fury, uh, one of which was called Soldier's Pay, which was okay, had sort of glimpses of what might come. But this is what he said, uh, which I thought was a really another interesting Mockingbird insight. When you come up against a, uh, a, a brick wall, an impasse, and all you can do is just give up. Give up. When you, you have uh, exercised every kind of option that you think you have, and you still come up empty, then that's the point in which uh, God takes over. This is, uh, this is what... Martin Luther said in the Heidelberg Catechism when he said, disputation when he said, man must despair of his own ability before the grace of God uh, can work. And so it's not exactly like that, but this is what he says about, um, about uh, the sound and the fury in this introduction that he wrote about four years after its, um, after its publication. He says, uh, after five years... I look back at the sound and the fury and see that that was the turning point. In this book, I did both at one time. And he's talking about different um, motivations of a Southern writer, which I won't go into. When I began the book, I had no plan at all. I wasn't even writing a book. Previous to it, I had written three novels which progressively, uh, decreasing, with progressively decreasing ease and pleasure and reward. The third one was shopped about for three years, during which I sent it from publisher to publisher with a kind of stubborn and fading hope of at least justifying the paper I had used and the time I'd spent writing it. This hope must have died at last, which is what Paul Zoll is talking about tomorrow morning. This hope must have died at last because one day it suddenly seemed as if a door had clapped silently and forever between Silently and forever, too, between me and all publishers' addresses and book lists, and I said to myself, now I can write. Now I can write. Whereupon, I, who had three brothers and no sisters, and was destined to lose my first daughter in infancy, began to write about a little girl, uh, which was Caddy Compson, which, uh, which was the, the image and the sound of the fury upon which everything uh, revolves, and James will talk more about that. Uh, so, um, and he wrote, and he wrote The Sound of Fury, and as, as we'll say later, we, we, we think it is the, uh, the, the novel, uh, maybe Moby Dick is close, but we think it is the American novel. Um, how to read Faulkner. So if you do read The Sound of the Fury, and James is going to go into this in a second, uh, and he's going to talk about the Benji section, so I'll just leave this to him. But uh, Sound of Fury is, uh, is a tale told by an idiot, which comes from Macbeth. And Benji, uh, as you open the novel, is you get the vantage point of Benji, who is an idiot child. He's a man child. And he's an idiot. He's, a, he's, a, he's unable to communicate to the world. And so you don't know what's going on. And um, one way is to, 
is just, like I said before, it's just to read it. And you're meant to be brought into this world of disorientation. And, and just to have patience and stay disoriented as Benji is disoriented. And then things sort of unfold from there. But I'm going to let James talk about it later. Now, um, what we also said in the little um, bio, I mean a little blip about this, was that, that, that Faulkner is a Christian. Now, everybody seems to want to claim Faulkner. And nobody's claiming Faulkner as some sort of evangelical or law and grace Christian. Um, people, everybody wants to claim him. Somebody told me about this experience they had last week where they were at this party and um, there was this older couple at this party and they seemed very nice and well put together and they were talking to our friends and uh, they were talking about Christ Church and Thomas Jefferson and, and then she, this person said to our friends, well, you know, Thomas Jefferson was an evangelical Christian, and I know I'm right. I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. And then, uh, you know, my friend said, well, I'm not really sure about that. You know, he took the Bible, and he cut all the miracles out of the Bible. And so he said, I had some ideas just about the precepts one should live in. And, and the woman said, well, you know what? You know why I did that? Because he took those miracles, and he kept them close to his heart, because they were so important. <laughs> Uh, so we're not doing that with Faulkner, okay? We're not, we're not making him into our own image. Um, but, um, but what's so interesting to me, and this is what he would say is that in his, his writing craft, is that he would just be like a carpenter who uses tools, the tools that are lying about. He was steeped in Christianity, having grown up in the South. Steeped in the story, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, it is, it is uh, as... Flannery O'Connor said, we live in a, in a Christ-haunted South. And that uh, provides what I would say is the kind of foundation. What's so interesting about him and Mockingbird is this is what we try to do in Mockingbird. He, he just used story. He let the story communicate. Rather than uh, being didactic, he just let the story, the illustrations communicate. This is what we try to do in Mockingbird. Let the images speak for himself. While I was here at UVA, he was asked the following question by a student. Mr. Faulkner, you've been called, among other things, a Christian humanist. I was wondering if you'd tell me what your, you consider your relationship to the Christian religion. And he replied, why the Christian religion has never harmed me, and I hope I've never harmed it. I have the sort of provincial Christian background, which one takes for granted without thinking too much about it, probably. That I'm probably within my own rights, I feel I'm a good Christian, whether it please anybody else's standard or not, I don't know. Um, so he, uh, at least himself, in this response, or his responses would change depending on who he's talking to, uh, you know, self-consciously identified as, himself as a Christian and went to church uh, down at, at St. Peter's in Oxford, Mississippi, um, every Sunday. He uh, also had uh, this deep insight. I'm going to read a piece of um, from Requiem from Anon into Requiem from Anon into both um, human need and uh, human nature, human need and human nature, which seems to me to express sort of a penetrating understanding of who we are and who God is. Um, this is Temple Drake, who's one of the main characters speaking, a really distraught character in Requiem from Anon, one of the later works. She said, somebody to talk to, as we all seem to need, 
want, have to have, not to converse with you, nor even agree with you, but just to keep quiet and listen, which is all that people really want, really need. I mean, to behave themselves, keep out of one another's hair, the maladjustments which they tell us breed the arsonists and rapists and murderers and thieves and the rest of the antisocial enemies are not really maladjustments, but simply because the embryonic murderers and thieves didn't have anybody to listen to them. Which is an idea the Catholic Church discovered 2,000 years ago, only it just didn't carry it far enough, or maybe it was too busy being the church to have to bother with man, or maybe it wasn't the church's fault at all but simply because it had to deal with human beings. And maybe if the world was just populated with a kind of dumb creature, half of which were dumb, couldn't do anything but listen to the other half, couldn't even escape from having to listen to the other half, there wouldn't be any war. Uh, the, the need that we have, which we have in Jesus Christ, uh, to unburden ourselves of uh, all that's creating our anxiety and distress, and not to be told what to do, but to have just the experience of being listened to, and that in itself is healing. Uh, and then finally, and then I'm going to stop, uh, this is what uh, Faulkner said, uh, which I thought was brilliant, about uh, the old man in the sea. He wrote a really short review of Hemingway's old man in the sea. Of course, they were compared all the time, and Faulkner wouldn't like to say anything bad about Hemingway uh, early on. And then this is what he said of the old man of the sea. His best. Time may show it to be the best single piece of any of us. I mean his and my contemporaries. This time, he discovered a God, a creator, Hemingway. Until now, as men and women had made themselves, shaped themselves out of their own clay, their victories and defeats were at the hands of each other, just to prove to themselves or to one another how tough they could be. But this time, he wrote about pity about something somewhere that made them all. The old man who had to catch the fish and then lose it. The fish that had to be caught and then lost. The sharks which had to rob the old man of his fish. Made them all and loved them all and pitied them all. It's all right. Praise God that whatever made and loves and pities Hemingway and me kept him from touching it any further. All right, I'm going to turn this over to uh, James Wilson, who will uh, lead us into the sound and the fury. Thanks, Paul. I want to apologize to everybody for, uh, for being late. I, I wrote, um, wrote what I wanted to say yesterday, and I got up this morning and realized I didn't have a printer. <laughs> so I went home and tried to print it, and... Uh, and my parents' printer didn't work, and so that's why I was late. It's what happens when you read The Sound of Fury every year for 10 years. That's <laughs> what happens. Um, so um, just kind of dovetailing off of what, uh, what Paul said, um, The Sound of Fury um, is Faulkner's third novel, um, and it was written during a time um, that was really a hopeless time in Faulkner's life. Um, his books had been received with relatively little success, and... Uh, it seemed like his writing career was essentially over. Um, and so that's when he sat down to try to write the book that he thought that only he could understand. Um, not thinking for a moment that it was ever going to be read by anybody. He wrote it for himself, and I, and I think he wrote it for God. You know, um, you know my, my, my brother, who's a musician, says that. You know, he says, 
whenever people aren't listening to him play, he says, I play for the gods, you're just an afterthought. <laughs> I think that's what, that's what Faulkner was doing um, with The Sound and the Fury. And um, as, also, as Paul uh, also alluded to, Faulkner's relationship with Christianity and popular opinion is, uh, is somewhat ambiguous. Um, it's, it's argued by a lot of scholars, everybody's trying to claim him, that the Christian imagery in The Sound and the Fury is, um, is just part of Faulkner's, Faulkner's culture. He's using the tools that are at hand for him to kind of convey what he's getting at. Um, and uh, Faulkner doesn't really help us with this debate. Um, he contradicts himself in various interviews. I mean, if you read his interviews, he says, I mean, I could quote it a lot, it's pretty racy and inappropriate. Um, uh, yeah, I don't want to use any words inappropriate, but he's really hard, he's really hard to pin down. Um, and, uh, and, and, he, and he doesn't want to be part of anybody's team. You know, he doesn't want to be uh, mixed up with any sort of ideological messages, um, certainly any political parties um, that are going to try to use him for purposes that aren't his. And he wants first and foremost to be known as, as, as Paul says, a storyteller, as a writer. Um, and um, as soon as you try to pin him down, and everybody tries, and there's so much bad criticism written about him, and I don't recommend anybody read any of it, um, or it's a couple things you can talk to me later. Um, but uh, um, he was, he, he's, the moment you try to pin Faulkner down is the moment he's going to wriggle free from what you think that he should be saying. He's going he's to wriggle free. He's going to escape what you want him to say, whether you want to say he's pro-North or pro-South or Christian or atheist or a fan of the civil rights movement or against the civil rights movement. He just breaks free, and he breaks free because he's a good storyteller, because he's the best storyteller, um, because that's what, he, that's what great storytellers do. Um, the purpose of the story is to, ass to assert and articulate the motions and actions of the human mystery. But never try to solve them, because the good storytellers know that only God solves things. Man can try to resolve, but God, God is what solves. Um, and so, in order to get any understanding of Faulkner and his relationship with Christianity, you have to understand that Christianity isn't a moral code for Faulkner. It's not a message. It's not a, a truth claim. It's certainly not a political agenda, but it's simply a story. Christianity is a story. Perhaps a true story, but nonetheless, just a story. It's a story of man's covenant with God. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Um, and I think for his readers, I think it's important to understand the way in which um, this is a story which we all participate in. It's an unfinished drama. That's what the Christian story is. It's a, it's a drama that has not yet seen its completion, um, which we are constantly living out as we wait in uh, joyful hope, as we say in church. Um, and uh, our job as readers and our job as writers is to hold on to this hope. That's why we do anything. To hold on to the hope with the, uh, the virtue that Faulkner calls endurance, which I think is the, the, other, the other virtue that Paul, St. Paul lived out. So, The Sound of Fury itself um, is a story about uh, the decline and the end of the Compson family. Um, they're an old southern family from lower Mississippi in Faulkner's mythical county of Yawknapatawpa. And the story is told in four distinct parts. First, you have the Benji section, which, as we said, is, is a Benji's the youngest, like the Benjamin of the Bible, uh, our youngest sold in Egypt. Um, and uh, he's mentally retarded and tries to tell the story as best he can. 
The second part is uh, from the neurotic eldest brother, Quentin, who's obsessed with his family honor, ends up going to Harvard where he commits suicide. The third part of the story is told from the brother, Jason, who um, I call the, the cruel prophet of the modern world, um, who takes over the household after the father, Jason Sr., drinks himself to death, and Quentin kills himself in Cambridge. Um, and then the final section of the book is the first time we get third-person narration. It's a very there's a change of voice. Where uh, It's called the Dilsey section, but it's really the Faulkner section. Faulkner takes on his own voice and tells the story focusing on families, the council family's black servant, Dilsey, who remains the steadfast and loyal servant of the family throughout um, till, the, till the end of the family, till the family disintegrates. Um, but I'm, I, I, I've re rewrote this a couple times because I just... There's so much. You just have to read it. You just have, that's the one thing I'll say is you just you have to encounter the language and you have to encounter the story. There's no meaning. There's no there's no um, kernel of truth like you're on you're peeling an onion. It's just you've gotta you, you've gotta experience the movement of the drama, and that's where the that's where the meaning is. But I think if um, I just wanted to focus on a little bit about the Benji section because I think it's horribly misunderstood, um, and I think a lot so many of the great critics um, I think really really miss what's going on. Um, but uh, just a little bit on why he chose to entitle the book Sound and Fury. Um, I was going to read just the Macbeth quote. Um, and I think if, before you read it, I would really recommend you just commit this to memory because it's everywhere. It's everywhere throughout the book. And so if you have it memorized, you're going to see it. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. It creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools their ways to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound of fury, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Um, and I think he calls the book Sound of Fury for two reasons. On the one hand, it's obvious. It is the first 80 pages are a tale told by an idiot. From the Benji section. Um, they're the 80 pages, and they're very difficult. Um, but um, Faulkner also recalls this passage um, from Macbeth because um, it's an image of a particular type of despair. Not peculiar modern, but um, it is a particular type of despair. Um, it's an image of man in a world in which his actions have no purpose, um, of motion without direction, of um, desire without satisfaction, which is really a world where there is no story. There's no story to be told because there's no... Motion has no direction, so you can't tell the story. That's, that's the image that Macbeth brings up. Um, it's not even like the Greek tragedies, um, where man battles valiantly against fate and fails, but rather in the end there are no battles worth fighting. As, as Jason Compson says famously uh, in a famous quote, uh, battles are never lost or won, they're never even fought. The field re reveals to man only his folly and despair, and victory is the illusion of philosophers and fools. Um, and finally, this image where no story, this image of despair where there's no story that's able to be told is a world, I think Faulkner sees as a world without God. Loss of faith in the deepest sense. A world where not only is nothing redeemed, but there's nothing worth redeeming. Um, and throughout the whole novel, Faulkner forces you to deal with this despair. 
he makes you sit with it. And the hardest part about the novel, while the novel is so painful for some people, is because he makes you believe it. He makes you believe the despair. That's what's so, if you read the Quentin Compson section and don't see it as a plausible option to kill yourself, you probably don't understand it. You know, and that's a hard thing for people to, to, to deal with. And so if you don't have a sabbatical or a long time to read some theory, just don't do it. Watch, watch TV or So the Benji section. Okay, we're finally into the book. Um, um, so this, as I said, this is the section that's most difficult to understand for first-time readers. Um, there's no accurate punctuation in it. Um, there's a little organization of experience. And uh, he seamlessly moves in and out of the present and past in a way that seems random. Um, he'll just, all of a sudden, it's 20 years ago, and you don't know why as a reader. Um, Benji also, as a, as a mind, he can't understand the relationship between cause and effect um, as the model moves, which uh, um, he can only piece together the impressions of the present moment in a haphazard way. So when it's raining, it says he could hear the roof. Or when he walks out, uh, you know, on Christmas, Christmas Eve, he could smell the bright coal. He can't, Benji, there's only the constant influx of human experience. Does that make sense? It just flows past him. Um, so the leaves rattle, the trees buzz, the, 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 you know, these, the world is coming up at him, flowing past him. Um, and this, is, this influx of experience is what Faulkner calls in the Benji section the movement of the bright shapes. Just bright shapes. That's all, that's all that's human experience is. Bright shapes. Um, so I just want to read just the opening paragraph, um, the very opening of the book. Um, give you a little taste of what I'm talking about, and I think it's important. It's really bad talking after two preachers talk. <laughs> I'm not used to talking. Uh, okay, through the, through the fence, April 7th, 1928. Through the fence, between the curling flower spaces, I could see them hitting. They were com coming towards where the flag was, and I went along the fence. Luster was hunting in the grass by the flower tree. They took the flag out, and they were hitting. Then they put the flag back, and they went to the table, and he hit, and the other hit. Then they went on, and I went along. Luster came away from the flower tree, and we went along the fence, and they stopped, and we stopped. And I looked through the, gra I looked through the fence while Luster was hunting in the grass. Here, Caddy, he hit. They went away across the pasture. I held the fence and watched them go away. Listen at you now, Luster said. Luster's his caretaker. Ain't you something? 33 years old going on that way after I done went all the way to town to buy you that cake. Hush up that moaning. Ain't you going to help me find that quarter so I can go to the show tonight? They were hitting little across the pasture. I went back across the fence to where the flag was. It flapped on the bright grass and on the trees. So here you see, from a first-person perspective, I mean, if you just open up a book and read that, you're going to see what's, what's going on. So um, you see from a first-person uh, perspective um, the retarded Benji, 33 years old, the same of Christ's crucifixion, um, and named Benjamin from the Old Testament, the youngest. And he's clutching the fence of the Compson family farm, and he's staring out, looking through the curling flower spaces of a golf course. And uh, you realize as the story unfolds that the golf course that he's looking at was actually his share of in his inheritance, what he was supposed to inherit, has been sold 
and uh, turned into a golf course to pay for his sister Caddy's shotgun wedding and to pay for Quentin, the oldest brother, to go to Harvard. Um, and, uh, and as he's watching the golf course and staring at it, he hears one of the golfers call for his caddy. And as soon as he hears the name of caddy, he starts to scream. And that's why Luster is getting him to try to be quiet. Um, and it's this incessant screaming, the moaning, the howling, the sound and the fury is the background noise of the whole novel. It's happening all the time, the screaming. Um, and, uh, and Faulkner describes the sound at different points in the novel. It's the sound of all mindless, tongueless human agony under the sun. Meaningless and sustained, hopeless and prolonged, it was nothing, just sound. It might have been all injustice and, and human sorrow become vocal for an instant as if by a conjunction of the plants. And it's um, the sound that Benji makes whenever he hears the name of his sister, the only girl who ever loved him, uh, the girl who uh, she holds him through the night. He's, he won't sleep unless Caddy's with him. And she holds him through the night, and he says, the bright shapes flow smoothly as when Caddy says we must go to sleep. That's the constant image. The bright shapes, the love which makes the bright shapes flow smoothly as Caddy says we're going to sleep. And she comes home every Christmas. She's at boarding school, and she comes back every Christmas. So Benji waits by the gate, waiting for Caddy. Um, and while no scene of the novel... How am I doing on time? I think it's my okay. Yeah, good. While this scene is purely symbolic, I think many ways Faulkner is attempting through the singular image of the opening scene to articulate uh, the despair we see in the Macbeth quote, um, a despair that we have all felt or will feel at some point in our lives, um, where we too find ourselves in a world in which we look about us and we see the image of our lost inheritance. It's not hard to live in the modern world and to feel that way, that this is not how people were meant to live. There must be a better way to live. There must be a way in which we can reclaim what we seem to have lost. Um, and it's been sold cheap for golf course and Harvard degrees, you know, leisure and profit, you know. And uh, that doesn't satisfy any of us. Um, and, uh, and so, um, and we, we experience this, uh, a sadness, a backdrop, which Falcon's trying to say that we are unable to articulate, like Benji is unable to articulate it. It's, the, it's, it's as the, the modern writer David Foster Wallace wrote, who my friend Matt Sidman turned me on to. He's describing his own depression as the terrible and unceasing emotional pain. And the impossibility of sharing or articulating this pain is itself a component of the pain and a contributing factor to its essential horror. And so we attempt to cure ourselves from the outside in um, by regaining our lost inheritance. Um, and this, you know, you could, you know, there's going back to the land, there's yoga and psychoanalysis, and we take pills, and we talk about family values. We even go to church, and, uh, um, and it's all ways of trying to restore the motion, restore the, the, um, the, the purpose of motion, to, to regain the meaning of action, to know how to meaningfully act within the world. It seems to have lost all direction. Um, as the Walker, as uh, Walker Percy writes, the present age is demented. It is possessed by a sense of dislocation, a loss of personal identity, and an alternating sentimentality and rage, which in an individual patient could be characterized as dementia. It's the perfect way of understanding the Benji section, why he needs an idiot to tell the story. Um, but if you look closely at the scene, 
you see, and this is all just in the first paragraph. This is why I tried to take on the whole book. This is the first paragraph. We're not even on the first page. Um, but as you look at the scene more, you see that the golf course is not why Benji's screaming. It's not the root cause of his pain. Um, instead, Benji howls because of what comes out of the golf course. He's staring at his lost inheritance. What comes out of the golf course is the name of the girl that loved him who does not come home. Um, she, uh, it's, Faulkner describes it as he can't even remember the girl. He can only remember the fact that she's gone. That's so important. He can't even remember her. Um, and yet he waits by the gate every Christmas for her to come back. Um, and so, as far as Benji's experience, and it does get weird as, as you read the novel um, as to how it all lines up, but it, it's been said that he experiences time like an animal. Like it's, uh, it's just like the brute, raw experience. Um, but I think this is totally wrong. Uh, and... Uh, um, through Benji, I think Faulkner is trying to show us something essential about our human natures. Um, at our cores, there's a part of all of us that's like Benji. He's trying to awaken this, especially in this time where things don't make sense. He's trying to awaken what you really are. And uh, as much as we as human beings, I think, pretend to be rational and objective, and in knowing our pasts and in control of our futures, um, we all, on some level, find ourselves in a world of time and memory which we experience the world as bright shapes. Moving as bright shapes. The ceaseless present moment, which for Benji. And we wait in constant expectancy of the love to be the fixed point by which we can meaningfully make sense of those bright shapes. Those bright shapes to flow smoothly again so that we are able to sleep. It's like the constant image that's always circled back. What can make the bright shapes flow smoothly again to make Benji stop screaming? Um, and uh, I think that this is the outset of how you need to read Faulkner. That he's trying to, in order to get anything out of it, he's trying to purge you of your preconceptions um, so that you can once again know um, what it would mean to be saved, I think, in some way. Um, and he's aware of the pain of, of how to endure in a world that has forgotten Christ. I think he's very keen that he lives in a kind of an Ecclesiastes moment where it feels like the covenant with God is broken, that God's not coming back. Um, and uh, the whole book is just a project about, about hope. Um, and he makes you feel the despair in order so that you can learn to hope again. As the same professor that Paul quoted said that, you know, Christ really has to believe, you know, that God has forsaken him, you know, on the cross. It's not, it's not just something that happens. That he really believes that it's all over. Um, and so... I think I'm out of time, but uh, the, po the book begins on Christmas Eve, but it ends on Easter Sunday, and there's a, a great sermon, um, which you should all read. But yeah, I hope, I hope you read it. You've got to read the book and experience it. That's all. Right, James, thank you. Uh, questions, comments for both of us? Thoughts, uh, connections, disconnections, tales told by idiots. Prol. <laughs> Make your own conclusions, Prol. I just I like what you said about you know Paul wants to purge you of preconceptions because there's such a great 
seems to me a great gospel connection there. Uh, that, that we're meant to kind of be purged of our, our you know, our, our sinful nature and the way that we perceive the world. So I, I never thought of that. Uh, really yeah. Again, you have to be totally stripped right. in order to be ready to receive. You have to, man, he must fully spare himself before he's uh, prepared to receive the grace of Christ. Yeah. Who else? Yeah. You said he didn't have beyond the high school education or he finished high school, but did he steep himself in great literature? Oh, yeah. He read and 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 read. And uh, at one point he said that, you know, he, he didn't, he just uh, sort of ingested uh, all, all the great literature when he was in his late teens and early 20s. And then it just kind of percolated there. And he didn't quite know what to do with it. And then when he was writing Sound of the Fury, it all came back up. And uh, it had been, you know, it had been gesticulating there. I don't think that's the right use of the word. But it's, uh, <laughs> it had been, you know, and then it came up and then it all came out. So he was a voracious uh, reader, obviously. But he, he also said, I mean, he always, again, it's hard to quote him as far as what he says. But he says the, that's all you really need to know is the Bible, Shakespeare, and the Greeks. Yeah. Greeks, 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 Greeks. Yeah. Go ahead. I've only read the Benjamin. Uh huh. Is it disclosed in the novel why Clinton commits suicide? Um, well, um, what did you say? Yeah, James. Yeah. I mean, I mean yes, yes, for about a million different reasons, and I have my personal reasons, and you probably have yours. Yeah, I mean, I mean, why, why specifically? Yeah. I mean, it's over, it's over his inability to understand why his sister Patty is, is married and his inability to understand the world and life of that fact. It's, a, it's really complicated, though. I mean, was there an incestuous encounter? Between no, there wasn't. He has to, he can't, you know, for Quentin, the kind of the fixed point of meaning, which I was trying to talk about in, in my uh, talk, I, I think Cat for Quentin, Caddy, Caddy's purity is that fixed point of meaning which Quentin views all of his meaningful actions in the world. If Caddy's not honorable in his mind, all of his actions don't have meaning. So he has to invent in his own mind that he committed incest with her. It doesn't actually happen. He has to invent it in his mind in order so that his actions can still have meaning. As long as he did it and not the outside world, um, then he can uphold the myth of his own head, which he needs to do in order to keep moving through the world. That theme runs through, uh, of incest definitely runs through Sound of Fury as well as Absalom Absalom. Yeah? There's a film years ago I didn't, I didn't see it. I, mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. Quentin, Quentin Jr. ends up married to Jason. Yeah. I would say, um, again, there's a thousand different reasons why anybody does commit suicide. And what James said was profound. is uh, you, you read the Quentin section, and uh, suicide seems like a justifiable act in a world that is um, falling apart and has the bright shapes, have no, uh, are completely disjointed. Um, Quentin's father, Jason, is uh, the deepest kind of uh, southern intellectual nihilist. Uh, he has abandoned um, his, uh, the, the, the faith of his fathers, which were, was there originally, 
and he um, medicates himself with alcohol. And there, there's some beautiful sections actually the way between he talks with Quentin and with uh, with, with Quentin and Absalom, Absalom. But he, he he's removed um, basically from Quentin's life uh, because he seems to me just a kind of cold intellectual nihilist. The mother, which, which is bad enough, I, I would pin it on the mother. Now, there's a point when in the book where Jay, where Quentin says, and he's the whole day, the whole Quentin section basically is the day he's he's committing suicide, and he says, I don't, I I don't have a mother. He says, I can't call her. I can't call her mother. I can't call her mother. The mother is this unbelievably self-absorbed, narcissistic uh, martyr figure, uh, and so he did feel an extraordinary love for Caddy, his sister, which I'm sure is sexualized, uh, because most all love is. And the mother is, um, is absent in any kind of way. So the absence of love, just, just as Benji, is, is, you said so brilliantly, it's the presence of love that allows the bright shapes to go in the right order so you can sleep and have peace. And that was absent in, with his mother. So I would say that's why he committed suicide. That's also what um, Clint Brooks says, who is one of the early scholars on Faulkner. Uh, yeah? You had said that we shouldn't read any Faulkner uh, criticism. Um, but there were a couple of things you would recommend. Like, you know, I think, um, I think uh, Clint Brooks, if you just want to figure out what's going on, kind of the basic structure of the novel, um, it, the, uh, the two writers that I've read that actually, I think, um, Get at what he's talking about. Um, Louis D. Rubin, it's really good. He was a uh, um, at LSU, and uh, Robert Penn Warren has a couple of good essays, um, and also relatively unknown, but Andrew Lytle has a couple essays on Faulkner that Andrew Lytle. That, that, that's that's my opinion. You just get a lot of people that don't know what he's talking about, so they end up talking about um, race or sexuality in a way that just kind of misses it. I think. There are just there. It's you know he, he was a he um, 
they're, they're spotty, uh, but there are some there's some passages which are unparalleled in terms of the description of the prose. I'm reading it out loud. As, and what what he actually said to the person is true. You know, if you don't understand it three times, read it a fourth. And so you, you do read the Benji section the first time, and you're supposed to be disorientated. And then, um, but you, when you go back and read it, there are some clues there. I mean, luster means 1933, and... Um, TP means a certain uh, time frame, and so, and you probably know this has just come out, but Faulkner had the idea that he would actually um, print the Benzi section in different colors, and then they've just come out with this uh, this this Sound and Fury edition, which is all sold out now. It's three hundred fifty dollars. It's all sold out. But if somebody wants to find one on eBay, then, uh, Christmas is coming. And uh, so, um, but. Then I just read a New York Times article about this saying, well, maybe it's even better. Like, you know, Faulkner wanted to do this, and then the publisher said, no, there's no way that we can do this. Because uh, Faulkner wanted to code it so we could understand it. But maybe that was just sort of a, an idea that wasn't great. So it, it's, it's, it, it's more powerful in the way that you experience it first. Then when you do go back and read it again and again, you do find your orientation a little bit. Would you read, in terms of the bright shapes, James, what we talked about at coffee, at the very end, uh, the restoration of the bright shapes and how that relates to okay. uh, Christian yeah. hope? I, I, yeah, I didn't know if I had time. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's do that, because I think that ties in beautifully with what we're trying to say about his, about the despair, and yet uh, God is, what you said brilliantly, God is the solver. Uh, only God uh, can can give the solution. And so this is, Shakespeare had a, had a, um, uh, had a saying only God can write Act 5. Uh, I used that in an Easter sermon about three years ago when I actually quoted it like that. Only God can write Act 5. Only God can solve it in a way that we can't understand. But if you read that last bit and say what a little bit of what I'm saying. Um, yeah, it's a, through, throughout the novel as the different family members die off. Um, it sounds really bleak. It's really it's a great book. Um, but they, uh, they, they're, they're constantly making these trips to the graveyard which the servants call the long road to the boneyard. And so when Quentin dies, they all go take the long road to the boneyard to bury Quentin, and then Jason dies, and they all go to the boneyard, and then they go visit. They go, they take this trip. Um, they take this trip uh, to the graveyard to visit their dead family members um, throughout the book. Um, and, uh, and while they're there, Benji is always sits in the, uh, he sits on the right side, and they're going... It, and it, you won't, it won't make sense the first time you read it, but it, as they go through um, the center of town, there's a Confederate statue in the center of town. And uh, neither Paul or I talked about it, but it is important. I wouldn't read too much into it, but the, what happens to the South in the aftermath of the Civil War is very important to what goes on in Sound of Fury, mostly just because it was a moment in which all of the meaning by which this family had um, justified its existence and all the rules and the patterns and the habits by which they made sense of the world around them was now gone. Um, and uh, he talks about that in that introduction. You know. um, but as, as when Benji goes around the right side of the statue on the long road to the boneyard, which we're all on, we're all on the long road to the graveyard, um, he moves along the right side, he, un he understands the pattern of the bright shapes. He says it reminds him of what, him of when Caddy says we're going to sleep. So he watches him, and um, the different servants that take him on the time they, he, in order to play a trick on Benji, they circle around to the left, and it's all of a sudden it's a pattern that he does not understand, 
And so he starts, that's so he starts to scream on this long road to the boneyard. Um, and so, just to read you a, a touch of this part. Just because I've never, I, I haven't read anybody that's really made sense of this part much. Okay. They approached the square where the Confederate soldier gazed with empty eyes beneath his marble hand in wind and weather. Buster took still another notch in himself and gave the impervious Queenie a cut with the switch, casting his glance about the square. Dare Mr. Jason care. It's, um, he's going he's decided he's going to go to the left and scare him. Let's show them niggers what quality Benji does. For an instant, Ben sat in utter hiatus. Then he bellowed. Bellow on, bellow on, his voice mounted with scarce interval for breath. There was more than astonishment in it. It was horror, shock, agony, eyeless, tongueless, just sound, and Luster's eyes back rolling for a white instant. Great God, he said, hush, great God. He whirled again and struck Queenie with the switch. It broke and he cast it away with Ben's voice mounting to an unbelievable crescendo. Ben's voice roared and roared. Queenie moved again. Her feet began to clop steadily. Jason, I skipped a little bit, but Jason came and reined it back in. Bessie's voice roared and roared again. Queenie moved again. Queenie's the horse. Her feet began to clop, clop steadily again, and at once Ben hushed. Luster looked back. Luster's the servant driving. Looked back quickly over his shoulder, then he drove on. The broken flower, Benji's always holding a flower. Reminds him of Caddy. The broken flower drooped over Ben's fist, and his eyes were empty and blue and serene again, as cornice and facade flowed smoothly once more from left to right, post and tree, window and doorway, and signboard, each in its ordered place. Um, and so I think, um, without jumping too much ahead to just give you the meaning, I, what I take from this part is that when Falk is trying to tell you, when you're on your long, this long road to the boneyard in life, and you hit these moments in your life, or in the life of a people where all of a sudden all of the patterns and things you thought you understood and your faith in the deepest sense, not just I believe in God or I don't believe in God, because even your most fervent atheist acts in the world as though his actions have meaning. There's still a faith there. Um, but when you hit these moments where all of a sudden the patterns by which you understood everything are gone, um, there's the horror. There's a horror to it. There's the, uh, the tongueless, eyeless horror that of Benji screams. But Faulkner's trying to tell you that God doesn't need your help to see that what needs getting done is going to get done. You're just, you might see it as horror, but you're just going to the left. For Benji, you know, it's, I mean, that's what he's saying. You're just, going, you're, just, you're just going to the left, just as the South was going to the left in the Civil War. They, you know, it was a people that was crushed and um, and uh, everything they knew was gone, and there was a horror in the wake of that post-reconstruction. Um, and so many of those young Southern men ended up killing themselves. Quentin was Quentin's not a fiction; he's a, he's a real character. Um, and Faulkner is trying to remind um, his reader in that final image that everything will return to its ordered place. You just don't you just don't see it as they turn around the Confederate statue. That's what I think is going on. Stop helping God cross the street like a little old lady. You too. Um, one, I think we have time for one more question or comment. 
And that's how he laid down. The, the child says, My mother was a fish. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Nobody knows what that means. Does anybody know? That's such a Christian symbol. Right. I, I'm, I'm sure that Faulkner didn't try to associate it with Christianity. I mean, you know, he'd caught, he caught. That, that character is, uh, very, is similar to, to Benji. Yeah. In, in other words, he's, he's got some mental dislocation, not to Benji's extent, but he. His mother died, and he caught this big fish, and he killed the fish, and his mother died, and so uh, he was living kind of trapped in that experience. And uh, that's, that's... That's pretty know. much it. It's not any more esoteric than that. I, I, would, I wouldn't think so. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard... It's that's a really hard... That's the for 25. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and also, I mean, I think for, Sound of Fury is one book that can stand on its own, but I do think also... Um, if you really want to get it, you've got to read all of it because it's it's all working together, you know. But you have to understand that that Quentin is the great grandson of Colonel Sartoris from the Unvanquished, and what what that all means to him and what's happening. With you know, it's like I was trying to say earlier that there is um, an expectancy of, of an unfolding drama which we live in, which we experience as we read. And, um, You've got to read all of it if you're going to pick up on anything. Because you get a lot more from Quentin and Absalom and Absalom and see more of the family history. And he really did create an entire world in this uh, mythical account. So. That's great, isn't it? Well, thank you all for coming. And uh, lunch is served upstairs in Meat Hall. Are we ready, Dave? Any, any announcements for us? Go easy the first time around. All right, thank you all very much.